This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden, and here on episode 53 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast, we'll be analyzing the geopolitics of subsea infrastructure in the Arctic, particularly data cables, which really have entered the uh, geopolitical conversation in recent years. And to uh, explain the situation to us, uh, we have uh, an expert on the topic. His name is Nima Karami. He's a research associate at the Arctic Institute. And... um, expert on various aspects of the Arctic, including uh, data cables. And uh, we'll also be probably talking about some other things uh, like the uh, recent developments in northern Sweden, this green transition that's taking place in northern Sweden that Nima has uh, written about, and also maybe a little bit about uh, shipping issues involving some uh, Middle Eastern countries in their newfound interest in the Arctic. So, Nima, great to have you here in the studio. Thanks for joining us here tonight. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. You've written about a cable race that could turn the Arctic's maritime domain into a critical global data choke point. So to start, can you explain why the Arctic is an important location for data infrastructure and what developments are currently taking place across the region? Um, Well, it's important because it's just closer to Asia. So it's a shorter distance, and therefore that means it's faster data transfer. And that's a huge, huge advantage. And it's also sort of an opening frontier and sort of developing Arctic as a whole, as a region. Economic development in the Arctic is very much dependent on having the right kind of infrastructure in place. And one of it is digital, the internet. So if you want to keep the Arctic population in the Arctic, if you want to have the extractive industry in the Arctic, if you want to develop the sort of the shipping lanes in the Arctic, you need to have good connectivity. And for that, undersea cables matter. And on top of it, it's a perfect location for having data centers. So the ecosystem would be great. You have the data center and it's also home to undersea cables. And on top of that, its remoteness, rather paradoxically, is an advantage. Um, So unlike, let's say, the Suez Canal, which is very sort of crowded, you don't have the disadvantage of unintentional uh, damages to undersea cables, i.e. anchors, right, or fisheries. And it's also less prone to natural disasters like tsunamis and undersea earthquake. So a combination of these and the fact that the region as a whole is becoming strategically important again, um, and countries like Russia are attaching more importance to it, is just all our incentives to go in there and lay these undersea cables and make sure that the region is connected. Right now, it's mainly satellite connection, which is not as good, and it's also more expensive. Um, in terms of projects, currently there are two main projects. One is the Russian-led project of Polar Express, uh, which essentially aims to connect the entire Arctic coast of Russia, and it's due to come online in 2026. Did they get that name from a Christmas movie? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is a Christmas movie, actually, for kids. Yeah. Uh, And then uh, in terms of involvement, it's purely financed by the Russian state and you have Russian companies, but the fiber optic cables are um, supplied by a Chinese company. The name of the company, at least to the best of my knowledge, I'm not aware of it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a subsidiary of Huawei. Uh, And then you've got the, uh, the High North Express, which is a sort of 
joint venture between uh, Sinai of Finland, uh, Subcom of the United States, and a Japanese entity, NEC. And ultimately, it will connect Japan to Alaska, and it has two sort of landing points in Europe, one in Norway and one in Ireland. And this one will pass through the Northwest Passage, whereas the Russian one is obviously goes through the Russian-dominated Northern Sea Route. So are these two um, projects, are they complementary or are they competing with each other? I mean, is there a need for so much data cables or are these, is this the tip of the iceberg? Or are there more to come, you think, in the future as well? Well, before the Ukraine war, it sort of it started with Crimea. I mean, and there are researchers that argue that fate of these undersea cables have always been at the mercy of geopolitical and strategic considerations of big states, the United States, Russia, etc. Um, Finland sort of tried to, as part of this notion of Arctic exceptionalism, the Finnish government came up with the idea of Arctic Connect project. And then you had American companies, a Finnish company, and a Russian company that tried to work together. Um, progress, granted, was slow because it was difficult at the time. We didn't have the technology and also the political will wasn't there, you know. So the progress was slow, but with the situation in Crimea, the annexation of Crimea, everything came to a halt. And then since the war in Ukraine, I mean, it's just not feasible to have this sort of cooperation anymore. Um, so yes, you could say these are competing projects, um, and there is an inherent danger in that, in in sense that Arctic could become divided, um, and that opens up a number of interesting questions. But to me, it's a mirror image of what we are seeing in the cyberspace. People are talking about a division in the cyberspace, in the digital sphere of internet. Um, and now we are seeing a similar thing in the physical infrastructure of the internet, at least in the Arctic. But I can argue that it's not only the Arctic, you can see the same thing in other regions. So think about um, Clean Network Initiative. Um, this will have imp uh, implications in the Arctic as well. I would argue the fact that you have these two competing projects is in fact because partly because of the Clean Network Initiative. So yes, there are competing projects because the states have uh, security concerns in terms of who has access to data, who controls the passage of data. Um, because simply put, if data is the new resource, if the new oil, well, it does matter who controls it and how much of it. So the security of these cables, of course, is, is of, uh, of critical interest and, and importance. In another article, you suggested that NATO should play a role in ensuring the security of these cables. And now with NATO enlargement, even though Finland and Sweden are not Arctic coastal states, how how is the NATO's increased role in the region going to um, affect this development of data infrastructure in the Arctic? Well, I mean, in terms of bringing the topic to the public domain, really, was NATO. October 2020, a uh, defense minister of NATO states uh, received a dossier, a briefing on the vulnerability of undersea cables. And after that, it became a hot topic in the media. Now, in terms of what role for NATO, with the difficulties, um, the whole sector is very much dominated by private sector actors, right? So you have investors who are big companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook. And then you have the repair end of the spectrum, which is, you know, essentially when these cables get damaged, who has the capability to go and fix them? Again, private sector. 
And there are a number of Chinese companies that are sort of really good at doing this, right? Um, and it's very difficult. So, for instance, in the EU, you have essentially four to five ships that are capable of carrying these projects. So in terms of what role for NATO, they've already taken the first step, which is they've initiated this program to work with the private sector to develop common capabilities. And I think, and again, this is my speculation, I think the thinking in NATO right now is that at least to have a conversation, to understand what the private sector's concerns are, what the weaknesses are, and where NATO can come in. Probably in terms of research and development, that's where NATO can come in. And they've got the financial capital to sort of sit down with these private sector actors and come up with uh, common programs. But the difficulty right now is that member states have sort of different views or frameworks on undersea cables, which is again um, a reflection of their different understanding when it comes to cybersecurity. And we can get into that later on. So there are institutional works to be done there, but whether NATO wants to be involved or not, I don't think that's, that's not the question. It is an Arctic state. A lot of sensitive data pass through undersea cables, and NATO, simply put, currently doesn't have a common sort of capability to be able to protect this. And current events is clearly an evidence of that. So therefore, they need to up their games. And on top of everything else, uh, again, this is something that NATO leadership is aware of. Uh, Russia, uh, you can speculate here, but Russia has been very sort of in terms of its naval development, has been very much focused on undersea infrastructure. It could be pipelines, it could be undersea cables. But this is something that has been in NATO's radar for the past five years. And now, there's a sense of urgency to do something about it. I suppose not least because of what's happened in the Baltic Sea in the last um, well, the last few weeks, but also looking back to last autumn with the uh, Nord Stream pipeline. Don't know exactly who is behind that. There's, of course, different uh, speculations on that, but also these uh, these uh, telecommunications cables between uh, Sweden and Estonia, and then uh, gas and telecommunication cables between Finland and Estonia. So there's a lot of things going on with the security of undersea um, infrastructure. So is it mostly a, a physical risk of cables being sabotaged, but also can can cables be hacked? Could your own data be at risk just because it's lying on the Arctic seafloor? Yes. Uh, so it's both, really. Um, and hacking, in, in a sense, hacking is cheaper. Um, so, you know, the saying that high tech is good, it's correct. High tech is good, but high tech brings more vulnerabilities as well, right? So these remote management systems, um, these are softwares that can be hacked into. And once you hack into them, you can redirect or reroute data. Um, but And it's cheaper. It's cheaper than sending a submarine to sort of carry out an act of sabotage. Um, and it's harder to detect. Um, so essentially here, the question is, if you want to carry out an act of sabotage, you could do it the cheap way. You know, you can weaponize civilian assets. It could be a fisher fishing ship. It could be a, I don't know, um, an individual with a boat to take it to the extreme. Or you could do it the expensive way for the sake of uh, secrecy. So you send submarines. But also you have the cyber capabilities on the other hand, right? So you can hack into these remote network systems and essentially tap into the data, listening to, so essentially you gain access to data, what sort of information is being passed. 
what's the i mean it depends on the purpose of your uh, cyber attack but uh, you can essentially gain a very good understanding of what I would say the information environment. So when we talk about um, disinformation and misinformation, the gray zone tactics, again, under C cables, you can dominate the information environment if you know what type of data is being transferred but, uh, and you, you control that. Well, let me just ask in that case, I mean, first you make the case that the Arctic is actually a very good environment for these cables because it's a shorter route between Europe and Asia and North America geologically stable, relatively speaking, mm. but it's right next to Russia and this huge Russian uh, geography coastline in the Arctic. Does that, is it a major disadvantage of putting so much uh, emphasis on developing Arctic undersea cables as opposed to in other parts of the world? Well, I mean, uh, yes, there is a point in that, but the question, on, on at least the way I look at it, is that we have cables in other places as well. And one of the main reasons that we now we are focusing on the Arctic is because compared to other region, uh, regions, there isn't much, there isn't any. Um, so it's not that like um, investment or attention is going to Arctic at the expense of other parts of the world. No, that's not the case. I mean, as we speak in the Pacific, it's in fact, I mean, I'm not an expert on it, but a lot of resources are going to that region for undersea cables, right? But with Arctic, the point is that the region as a whole is becoming important. So it does matter whether it's not connected or not, uh, who controls data. So it, I think, again, it's the geopolitical consideration that is driving um, at least state-level attention to the region. But for private sector actors, so you know, if you are sitting in the headquarters of Facebook or Google or Amazon, and you're like, look, if I've got this region that is perfect for data center, um, if I want to send my workforce over there, but it's not connected. If you are sitting at the sort of in Parliament in Stockholm or Finland, and you're like, look, the fact that a lot of locals are leaving Arctic regions and coming to Stockholm, Helsinki, how can we stop that? Well, you need better connectivity. And so it's a combination. It's not like a black and white picture, but the fact of the matter, at least at the very basic, the bottom of it for me is that Arctic is an emerging frontier and therefore a lot of attention is going to the region and a lot of developments that have taken place in other parts of the world are going to come to the region as well. So we can draw lessons there. Uh, but obviously Arctic has a very unique uh, environment. So it can't be just a copy paste from, let's say, what happened in Middle East uh, and then apply it to the Arctic. Okay, so the Arctic then is a destination in and of itself for this, these data networks. It's not just sort of a, a region that these long cables are passing through to get to the, uh, the capitals of Europe. This is actually a, a destination for increasing the, the, the data capacity for northern Sweden, for northern Norway, for northern Canada, and so forth. Correct. And also the fact that, you know, amongst the Arctic states, uh, I mean, Russia is really heavily focused on the development of the Arctic. It sees its future in there. Um, and therefore, it needs to invest. So if you read the sort of the Russian commentary on, you know, Russia's strategy in the Arctic, whether it's military or economic, um, one of the theme is that, well, you know, if we want to grow uh, the region um, economically, we need to be able to defend it. It's one of the things that I argue when it comes to Sweden, if northern Sweden is going to become this strategic hotspot, well, one 
factor that would enable Stockholm to achieve that goal is to make is to be able to have the capabilities to ensure stability and security there. And that requires military presence. Military presence requires connectivity. I mean, cyberspace is a domain now, right? So again, it's interconnected. One case that we shouldn't uh, miss is the uh, a couple of years ago when uh, the one of the two uh, main data cables that connect uh, northern Norway with Svalbard was, I guess, sabotaged or was yep. disrupted somehow. Um, I don't know how that was resolved in the end. Is there any um, ideas on what actually happened and has that uh, cable been repaired? I think it was 2021 that that took place, right? The, yes. Uh, the cable has been repaired because it, it's an important cable. So one of the problem, so you have, when I say you don't have, in, so what I meant by you don't have cables in Arctic is that you don't have intercontinental cables in the Arctic. You have regional cables, right? And the problem there is, so one of the reasons that you can have cyber resiliency is to have options, right? So when one cable goes down, you can easily shift to the other cable. That was not the case in Norway, that created problem. And all of a sudden, one region was just disconnected. We didn't know what happened there. So that's one of the problem with Arctic right now, that yes, we have these cables that sort of connect local spots or regional spots, but we don't really have any resiliency there because it's just one cable or two cables. Therefore, if we want resiliency, and if you read the cyber security or cyber strategy of Nordic states, it's all about resiliency. Um, they need to develop more cables. So it has been repaired, um, but obviously important lessons were learned. And also at the time, the idea was like, and I think it's still to, to date, the idea is that we don't want tension in the Arctic. That's why you don't get a lot of clear answers on who did it, why or why that the suspected actor did it. It's this sort of damage control thinking that like, we know who did it, but let's not publicize it because ultimately we want the stability. I mean, there was this incident uh, just a few days ago, a few weeks ago here in, in the Baltic region where, as I mentioned earlier, this um, gas pipeline was was ruptured and uh, these data cables um, were also, and they, there's been, I guess, some intelligence about it being traced to a, uh, a Chinese ship's anchor, mm-hmm. and whether it was an accident or not, uh, whether this can be confirmed. But uh, what, did, what does that say to you about, about the security of, of undersea cables? Are they also prone to accidents? And is it easy to sabotage cables with the plausible deniability about a, just a, a normal container ship uh, just having its anchor dragging across the bottom and accidentally, supposedly, uh, causing such damage? Uh, the latter. I mean, it's like it's a very like inexpensive tactic, right? And it's very difficult to, you know, with confidence to blame a state level actor for this. Um, and that that's sort of that's one of the difficulties of talking about the security of undersea cables. Yes, they are undersea, but a bi- an important element of ensuring their security is about good surveillance uh, on the ground. Uh, just to make sure like the maritime security in terms of the ownership of ships. Um, what's the structure there? What's the historical data on those ownership? Um, that's something that uh, needs a lot of work on to figure out who's done what for what purpose to be able to come up with a sort of concrete conclusion in terms of who is responsible. But again, there is an interesting similarity with cyberspace. You can never be sure who carried it out. It won't be a state unless we are in in a situation of conflict. Then yes, you can have a state actors directly involved. 
Otherwise, I cannot personally think of a situation in which a state would directly <laughs> be involved in carrying out an act of sabotage. Uh, because that's just uh, not a good strategy. You know, there is no deniability in that. So yes, I mean, it's a, it's allegedly a Chinese ship, but was the was the Chinese state behind it or not? It's everyone, it's anyone's guess. And is there any um, organizations that uh, are involved with the governance of data cables in the Baltic, in the Arctic, um, around the world? I mean, in this region. Is the Arctic Council, is this something part of their uh, portfolio in any way? The European Union, others, we mentioned NATO. Is there anybody that's kind of uh, coordinating this, overseeing this, regulating this? No. So one of the problem is that you have the United Nations and the UN Convention, on the law of the seas. There isn't much, and again, I'm not a legal expert, but there isn't much in... Uh, in that convention that sort of covers undersea cables. So legal experts would argue that when it comes to conflict situation, in fact, there isn't anything. So Article 113 hints at like undersea cables, but uh, according to that article, to be able to sort of call an act of aggression a sort of state-sponsored, you need two you need to have two evidence one is that it's intentional um and it uh, sort of causes a clear physical damage to the cable and on top of that it interrupts communication it disrupts communication so it becomes very difficult and that's it really that's about it so you have this uh, lack of sort of uh laws when it comes to undersea cable and on top of that the united states and turkey two nato states they haven't ratified the convention, right? So a lot of people are talking uh, about NATO, advocating the idea of NATO taking the lead on this. Controversial, but if NATO wants to revitalize its political role, which I think it should, it's a good starting, it's a good initiative to take the lead on. The EU, for the sake of uh, uh, having a huge interest, or its nation states, member states having interest in undersea cables, it has been trying to come up with uh, some sort of a EU uh, policy or a strategy on undersea cables, but it's a work in progress. Uh, the, the, recently, there was a paper out, not an official paper, obviously sponsored by the EU, but not an official EU policy, that uh, talks about undersea cables in depth. Uh, why they are important, why they are important to the EU and what should be done. And it advocates partnership between the EU and the United States. That, to me, given the current situation, reads EU and NATO. And then you have the Arctic Council. But Arctic Council, that's an interesting one. In an ideal world, it would have been the perfect venue, at least when it comes to undersea cables in the Arctic. The problem is Arctic Council is currently dead, like uh, really with the exclusion of Russia. It has resumed its work, but it's not close to where it used to be. And on top of that, it can't really touch anything that has to do with defense and strategy. So I personally and so many other people advocate the notion of that, yes, Arctic Council it needs a reform so it can actually talk and discuss um, defense and security issues. But given the current situation, um, that's just not going to happen. So yes, you have this institutional vacuum uh, whereby you can't really even discuss these issues. And to me, that leaves NATO as the best second alternative. 
One of your articles I found really interesting when you write, where you're writing specifically about northern Sweden and the development of, uh, of Norrland, which is the northern, uh, northern half of this country. Many of the industries that are being developed up there very rapidly, actually, at the moment, are very much dependent upon high technology, um, alternative energy, renewable energy. Uh, data centers is one that you mentioned there. Also, the, the mining of strategic minerals uh, around uh, Kiruna and other locations in northern Sweden. And uh, also um, space technology, um, primarily because of the, the S-Range um, launching a site there in, in northern Sweden, also very close to Kiruna, making Kiruna a very um, strategic location. So perhaps you can tell us about the thesis of that article you wrote and some of your thoughts on the connections between subsea data cables and infrastructure with locations in the Arctic. For me, you know, having all these strategic sectors or industries in the Arctic um yes it makes arctic a hot spot uh, but it also gives sweden finland norway a lot of influence when it comes to nato's arctic strategy so what we saw with the eu for instance the nordic states they played an influential role in sort of shaping eu's perception or official standing on the arctic so it's a lot about environment and environment uh, or climate change and environmental security, not only for sustainable development, but also as a security threat. Uh, so we could expect a similar move uh, when it comes to NATO. So my guess is that in the future, these countries will take a lead when it comes to NATO's stance on the Arctic and how it's going to develop. Obviously, it's not going to be as straightforward because you have major players involved. And I think one area that they will really struggle with will be the role of non-Arctic states. No, Arctic states, including Sweden, including Norway, they've been very adamant to sort of protect the notion of exclusivity. If you don't have ter territorial presence, if you don't have geography here, you don't really get to talk about political issues. And now that they are going to rely even more on NATO, not for political backing, but also for you know development of capabilities um, that would be very relevant to Arctic, because one of the challenges that Sweden faces is that, well, it's going to cost a lot of money to develop all these weapons, right? And they have to be cutting edge and they have to have a long life cycle. Well, with NATO, you can do it. But then NATO as a whole is not, I mean, every single member state in NATO it's not an Arctic state. So how are you going to justify that? How are you going to retain that notion of, you know, being the balancer, which was one of the theme of Sweden's Arctic strategy, being the balancer between non-Arctic states and Arctic states? How are you going to maintain that? Are you going to maintain that? Um, so it will open up a lot of opportunities. Uh, it will give Sweden a chance to influence NATO's uh, approach towards Arctic, but it will also bring out a lot of um, difficult questions. And given the politics of Sweden, the left, the right, you know, we both know NATO is not, I mean, not every Swede is very sort of keen on being in NATO. And that would pose serious challenges uh, in the years ahead.
If we look at specifically at Kirana, right, uh, which has kind of a convergence of all of these three trends of yeah. uh, strategic minerals, uh, rare earth minerals that have been discovered in uh, in the vicinity of the major, also strategic uh, iron mine mm-hmm. in uh, in Kirana, and uh, the S range uh, rocket launching um, location there. And also data centers, maybe not exactly Kirana, but right now in Lulio, Facebook has a major data center, and I guess there's others probably in the works being developed. Mm-hmm. This certainly is uh, relevant for the um, this main part of the interview we're talking about here today, and the, the data cables. How do these really intersect? Is these data cable developments a prerequisite to develop northern Sweden and other northern European locations? Uh, is that necessary for this to happen? Um, I would argue so. So if you think about it with the mining, Maybe not as much with the mining. And mind you, just a quick bracket here. When it comes to mining in Sweden, it's not really the iron ore that is like um, the biggest asset. It's the way that it's the technology that Swedes have sort of mastered to produce it. You know, it's uh, clean. It's 99% clean. It's the technology that matters there. But anyhow, for the space, um, it's the only space center on continental Europe. Okay. And the space is a strategic domain. Uh, so you definitely need secure communication. And well, secure communication, um, you cannot just rely on satellite communication. It's expensive and it's not as good. So yes, definitely the fact that you want to have these undersea cables and you want to make sure who gets involved in it, the private sectors, you sort of uh, vet the players in it, who can be the supplier, who can actually do the laying down, who can do the repair. It's all part and parcel of this broader strategic thinking that we need to make sure that no one can touch our data. So when it comes to space, yes, whatever is going to be communicated, whatever images that you are going to receive, you need internet, you need fast internet, and then you have to sort of disseminate that information, that data, it needs to be secured. And it's not just military. Swedes would argue, and it's one of those interesting things, it's in a double-edged sword, how you want to frame it. They'd be like, you know, it's not just military, it's about the environment as well. If you really want to protect the Arctic environment, you know, to understand climate change, well, you need satellite, you need the space uh, center. So you can sort of have satellite imagery and analyze them fast. But given the close link between environmental security and national security now, again, you need these undersea cables. So the region needs to be better connected for sure. And for it to be better connected, you need to have data centers and undersea cables. But then these undersea cables, these assets, the physical infrastructure of the internet, they need to be secured. So you need to invest more in your capabilities. So for instance, you need to have more submarines. You need to rely more on unmanned vehicles. Uh, You need to train your troops differently. It have sort of ripple effects all the way down to how you, like what kind of armed forces you want to have. Uh, So this new sort of military base that we are talking about. I don't think, and I'm guessing here, but I don't think it's going to be very similar to a typical Swedish military base in the South. Um, And that's one of the unique things about the Arctic. Given its harsh environment, uh, it requires a lot of modifications. One of the reasons that NATO wants to be involved is that it believes mastering security in in the Arctic would enable it to take the lead on sort of developing the technologies and the tactics that will be needed to deal with environmentally induced security threats down the line. One of the big economic developments in the Arctic uh, 
has been anticipated and expected and talked about for quite some time is the uh, development of shipping the northern sea route um, to a much lesser extent the the northwest passage through Canada. But do you see any parallels to this development or this ongoing development and this future development of uh, of subsea infrastructure with this this discussions around surface shipping that mm. uh, have I guess, been realized to some very small extent, but still have uh, a long way to go in terms of development. Do you see any any synergies there between shipping and subsea infrastructure or any any contradictions or any parallels? Well, I think for me, um, the most important issue here is that who is sort of like the, with Northern Sea Routes, right? One of the biggest challenges that Russia insists on sort of applying its own domestic sort of rule, you know, Russian sovereignty. It's a Russian territory, so we regulate uh, movement. Um, and it's going to insist on the same thing when it comes to undersea cables. And one of the reasons that uh, Fiber North project is going through Northwest pas- Passage is precisely that. They just want to completely avoid the headache of Russia. Um, so yes, the synergy is there, um, but uh, you know you can't deny the fact that the, the Northern Sea Route is already more developed and it's already being used. So there is a bit of a catch-up game going on there. And I think there the weakness for the NATO states is that while countries like Japan, for instance, a non-Arctic state uh, that is siding with the West when it comes to undersea cables, you know, is sort of investing in Western projects, um, countries like Japan, like South Korea, India, they don't see eye to eye with the West when it comes to Northern Sea Passage. Everyone is more interested in Northern Sea Passage because A, it's already there, you have more infrastructure there, but B, um, Russia is just, uh, it's easier to do business in the sort of oil and gas sector of uh, Russian economy in the Arctic. It's not tightly regulated. Russian wants Asian investment in it. Russian they want to sell Arctic oil. They want to sell Arctic gas. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case when it comes you know, to Western Arctic states. So I think that's one challenge. But with undersea cables, uh, clearly uh, the question of uh, national sovereignty and territorial waters that sort of are complicating to an extent, uh, hasn't come to the fore yet, but to an extent is complicating maritime affairs in the Arctic. They will definitely complicate ownership of data and data transfer and you know sort of who controls the undersea cables in the Arctic, which is very interesting here. I'm just going to quickly mention this because when you look at the Western view of internet governance and the so-called authoritarian view of it, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, China, Russia, they insist on sovereignty, the notion of sovereignty, right? Whereas West is like, no, we want a more sort of liberal order when it comes to internet governance. But now, when we go under the sea and talk about undersea cables, there's an interesting synergy here. They're both talking about sovereignty. It does matter who controls the cables. It does matter who controls data. And I think there is a bit of fine... I mean, in the West, we need to fine-tune the discourse, the narrative, because right now they contradict each other. And if your narrative contradicts or the components of your narrative contradicts the big message, then, well, I think... You won't be able, you you have less chance of sort of getting your message across. I'm also wondering about, just from a geographic standpoint, about how, I mean, I have known nothing about the technology of laying these cables and maintaining these cables, 
But does remoteness play any any role? Does it matter if, for instance, I mean, the the two routes that we've mentioned, the Northern Sea Route and the Northwest Passage, you know, uh, Russia and Canada. There's also this third route that's more hypothetical than anything else, but this sort of the the transpolar mm. route that goes basically right over the North Pole. Is that a is that a potential route for data cables as well, or is sea ice and lack of land infrastructure nearby? Does that does that matter? Um. Well, look, I think the bottom line is if people are talking about shipping lanes, uh, if sort of you can have passage of ships, you can lay cables. It won't be as easy. It will cost more. But yes, I mean, of course it's possible. But is it going to happen now? I don't think it's going to happen in the near future. But once shipping picks up in the third passage, which is, by the way, the shortest one, and once it opens up, it's the most commercially viable one between Asia and North America. Uh, then, yeah, I mean, of course, if you have passage of goods, you can have passage of cables. Um, it was the same thing maybe 15, 20 years ago when we were talking about, you know, Arctic, you know, uh, Northern Sea Route. Well, it's difficult, you know, it's, it's very challenging, it's expensive, and it's true. But people were talking about it. Uh, there were some ideas. People tried to run projects. It didn't work out, but ultimately now it is working out. So I think it's just a matter of time. Well, if we turn away now from uh, from data cables and infrastructure and we turn more towards uh, shipping uh, in its own right, um, you're also uh, an authority on uh, issues related to uh, the United Arab Emirates and, and other Middle Eastern countries and their interests and engagements in the Arctic and um Recently, there was a uh, an announcement that Russia had partnered with uh, DP World. Is yes. that correct? Yes. A, a, a UAE-based, uh, uh, Dubai-based company to develop the Northern Sea Route, to develop uh, container shipping in the Arctic. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about that and and what that says about the shifting uh, geopolitical constellations in the Arctic. Okay. Um, so when it comes to the DP World and and the government of the UAE more broadly, um, so. The first thing to remember or to be conscious of is that DP World, like the Emirates Airline, like the Etihad Airways, these sort of national companies, uh, they are privately owned, but they are really an extension of the state. Um, and that's got a lot to do with the fabric of the society in the sense that you have the ruling elites, you have the royal families, and the way that the economy is managed is that you know patronage. So there are dominant commercial families, and they run these businesses. DP World in particular is very interesting because when you, if you look at its expansion, it's gone to the regions or it, it has invested in regions, heavily invested in regions where the government of the UAE has a lot of interest. So that's part of the equation. So in that sense, the reason that DP World is investing in Russian Arctic um, of course, there is a commercial calculation there. It makes sense. And it's a, it's a maritime nation. But it's a part of the larger effort of the, the UAE government to have a good constructive relationship with Russia for a number of reasons. Um, so UAE, like many other Middle Eastern countries, is very much invested in this idea of uh, multipolar world. And they believe that they see eye to eye with Russia on a number of important issues in the Middle East. And one of the ways to ensure that they have the Russian backing, um, and here comes the question of Iran, for instance, so they can reduce or influence to a point Russia-Iran relationship, is to 
be an important player in the Russian Arctic as an investor. So yes, we will enable you financially to invest in projects to develop Northern Sea routes. But in return, we have this and this, you know, we have a number of uh, int- uh, requests when it comes to it, for instance. So part of it is commercial. Part of it is has to do with the fact that it's a uh, maritime nation. Um, but to me, at least, it's mainly a political calculation. Russians are interested in developing their Arctics. We go there, we invest, and in return, we can get Russian arms, we can get Russian backing, but we can also influence Russian calculation in the Middle East. They've done a similar thing, DP World has done a similar thing in uh, Horn of Africa, uh, and they've done a similar thing in uh, Asia Pacific. So DP World in Hong Kong runs probably the biggest um, shipping facilities in terms of logistics and ports in Hong Kong. And part of that, I would argue, is because they want to have a good relationship, a very strong, solid relationship with China, which uh, clearly they do. Do you see this as making a difference on the Northern Sea Route, or is this just a drop in the bucket in terms of the the, the level of investment that's necessary for that region? Well, I mean, uh, honestly, um, I don't know. But the one thing that I would say is that Russians have been way more successful in uh, attracting foreign investment into their Arctic region, which is quite interesting because Russia was one of the main advocates of this exclusivity, you know, no role for non-Arctic states. And now when you look at it, they've opened up to India, um, they are more than keen to work with China, and they've been courting uh, Middle Eastern states, more, more specifically the Gulf Cooperation states, so the UAE, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. With Qatar, then I think Qataris have been more reluctant to invest. Um, that's because they are looking at it from a purely um, sort of gas market perspective. They are competitors. So they don't want to enable Russia to become an even bigger producer than it already is, because that obviously undermines their own position in the gas market. And then the whole question of pricing and all the rest of it. Uh, but the Saudis have been reluctant for different reasons, but now they've opened up to the idea. But the Emiratis were the first one to jump on it. So anyways, going back to your questions, I think Russians have done a better job in attracting uh, foreign investment to their Arctic region. Um, was it intentional or not? That's a different question. At least when it comes to China, um, I would argue they weren't keen on it, but because of the sanctions after Crimea, rightly so, they were really left with no option. They were desperate. So they went to China and they were like, look, floor is yours. Come in, invest, and we can be partners. So about 10 years ago or so, it was kind of trendy to talk about the East Asian countries and their newfound interest in the Arctic when China and Japan and Singapore and South Korea, India all became observers to the Arctic Council. And of course, the European countries, as many European countries that have hundreds of years of engagement with the Arctic. Is the Middle East a, a growth area for interest in the Arctic, or is this just an isolated thing with the UAE? Or are there other Middle Eastern countries that are perhaps starting to look north and seeing the economic, geopolitical, environmental, scientific um, uh, interests in the Arctic? Mm. Um, I think Middle East as a whole is very blind to the region. I think they still haven't sort of uh, realized the importance of the region uh, from a sort of climate change perspective. Um, so yes, you have countries, and by no means I have, I don't really have any insight into this, but like recently I read an article on The Diplomat about Iran expressing interest 
to set up a station in Antarctica. Um, I would consider that more rhetorical. I don't think they have the resources, to be honest, to be there. Um, you yourself know more about Turkey and its stance when it comes to Arctic. Um, but the gain, like based on the limited conversations that I've had with Turkish researchers, Arctic is not really up there, at least the, one, the people that I've talked to. And the same thing goes uh, to the GCC states. Um, I don't think Middle East is really aware of the importance of it, or if they are aware of it, they don't pay a lot of attention to it. Because once, <laughs> as one analyst once told me, was like, Look, if you are in the Middle East, you have enough on your plate to figure out. Like, it's by far the messiest region in the world. Uh, so you really don't have the luxury of thinking, oh, I may have this and that interest in that specific region, which is very far. Uh, the Emiratis have done a good job there. I mean, they've managed to... It's a very sort of no mercantilist approach. They're following the footsteps of Singaporeans, right? So they'll go. they've done a good job at sort of expanding their commercial presence in regions really far from Middle East, like Latin America. We're talking about Colombia, for instance. But uh, they really haven't looked at it strategically, as far as I know, unless you want to label commerce as sort of uh, an strategic approach, which there is point to it. But in terms of um, having a political agenda for this region, um, no, and as far as I know, UAE hasn't even contemplated the idea of becoming an observer state. All right, another article uh, of yours that um, you suggest that uh, UAE should actually engage more with the Nordic countries yep. as a way to sort of counterbalance its its uh, very cozy relationship with Russia. Could perhaps you explain that a little bit? Um, so there is unease, right? There is unease uh, in some corners in the Middle East, uh, in, in the UAE. Um, you know, at the end of the day, decision making, you know, in, in the UAE and I would say in, across all the GCC states. Yes, they are not liberal democracies, but when it comes to decision making, it's um, it's a collective effort. So there are advisors with differing views and opinion, and um, they openly express those um, to the sort of to the royals, so to speak. And they ultimately make a decision. So there is this concern in the UAE that we can't be, like we really need to be careful in terms of who our partner ultimately is. Okay, yes, it's a multipolar world, but at the end of the day, as a smaller state, you will have to, if it comes to it, you have to take side. Are we going to take side with the Russians, the Chinese, or the Americans? So that's one question there. And I would say that at the end of it, the Emiratis will side with the West, so to speak, or the US. Um, and one, and there was concern. There was concern with sort of growing relations between um, Russia and the UAE. And I would go as far as arguing that one of the reasons that, for instance, there was a normalization with Israel, one of the reasons, was to ease those concerns, right? We are still in the Western camp. Um, and But also, I firmly believe there are interesting synergies. You know, uh, the Nordic states have a small population like the UAE. Some of them are energy-rich, like the UAE, Norway, for instance, and the UAE. Um, some of them are maritime states, like the UAE. And I also believe, as someone who has lived in the UAE, like the UAE can benefit immensely from the the welfare state, the social model that Nordic states have developed over the years, given the fact that it's wealthy and it has a very small population. 
uh, or the notion of total defense, for instance. I think it neatly applies to a country like the UAE. Uh, UAE doesn't need to invest a lot in like being uh, very good at sort of having uh, offensive capabilities. It, all it really needs to do is to be able to ensure security internally, especially that it's a commercial hub. So given these synergies and the very fact that, you know, the Scandinavian states or Arctic states are also open to foreign investment. They do require foreign investment into various sectors, maybe not shipping or oil and gas, but well, you know, data centers, for instance, right? Um, I think there are these interesting synergies there that needs to be explored uh, as another way of countering this notion that we are drifting away from the West. So when it comes to Arctic, they can sort of have obviously commercial relations with Russia, but why not with Sweden? Why not with Finland? Why not with Norway? And it's good to see that there is more activism on the side of the UAE. So now they are more active, like at least diplomatically, they are way more active in Finland than five years ago. They are more active in Sweden, and but they've always been active in Norway and Denmark for commercial reasons. Um, so that's why I make that argument that if you truly are serious about uh, you know, being interested in commercial opportunities only in the Arctic, well, you know, you have the Nordic states as well. Why not? Why Why are you only focused on Russia? Oh, it's been a really fascinating, wide-ranging discussion here tonight, Nima. It's uh, covered a lot of ground from data cables to the UAE and a lot of stuff in between. So thank you very much for joining us here on the podcast. And um, certainly you're based here in Stockholm. Love to have you back on to uh, update us on some of these developments that uh, we discussed here tonight. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks.